Hello, and welcome to the League of Josh podcast. I'm your host, Joshua. Today, I had on my friend, Isabel Chung. Isabel's been working at Vancouver General Hospital as a respiratory therapist. During our conversation, we discussed COVID, mortality, burnout, as well as coping with the demands of a high-paced job such as hers. We also do a deep dive into the technical aspects of her work, as well as the pulmonary system itself. Isabel is currently applying for a grant through Vancouver General Hospital, which would allow her to research ways that would take people off of ventilators sooner. It would be a different type of, of ventilation. And with my rudimentary understanding of the pulmonary system, I think that she's definitely onto something. I think it'll be some pretty cool research when it comes out. So yeah, this was, this was Isabel's first time doing a podcast of any sort. And I thought she did a really good job at articulating herself. We do get deep into some technical numbers and such. I found I was a little bit lost at some points, but towards the end, things really clicked. And we had a conversation after in which I was able to, to keep along a lot more and understood what she was talking about. So I thought that was kind of a cool part of the conversation is that I got to learn a lot. And she's just such a knowledgeable individual. And I'm so glad that I was able to have her on because this is a qualitative conversation. And it goes past the statistics of COVID that we've seen recently. and and it gives a, a real first person understanding of the, the first line of hospital workers. So I thought that this was a, an incredibly valuable and more or less just interesting conversation. I was really happy with the discussion that we had. Like I said, she's been a long time friend and just catching up with her was amazing. I thought that she did a great job. We also talked about COPD and other things later on in the episode and just general pulmonary health. So. Yeah, I hope that you guys enjoy it. I really loved it. I love Isabel. She's she's one of my best friends. So, yeah, thanks a lot, guys. Enjoy. Love moisturizing. Okay. Okay, you ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, game face. We're going. We're doing it live here. Okay. Uh, Where's it? Just like that for the entire episode. Perfect. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> I'll put in little animations. So anytime you talk, you're, there's always something being animated. You have like and Tweety like, birds flying all over the place. <laughs> Flowers come up. Uh, I'm a fucking anime character. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm that good at animation. It would probably just be <laughs> stick people, stick flowers, that kind of stuff. Um, let's start off with uh, what is an RT? What is a respiratory therapist? Can I swear in this podcast? Is that allowed? You can do whatever you want. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. I, was just, I don't know why that was the first thing I thought. Of. <laughs> you can you can do whatever you want. I don't control you. You got you. You do your thing. Okay. Um, that's way too bright. Um, an RT. Fuck if I know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, an RT, I guess, maybe you should ask me it again, because I just ruined your question. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. Um, what, does the, what, what role does a respiratory therapist play in a hospital setting? What does your day look like in an ICU? How do you differ from maybe a nurse's aide or um, someone in the surgical wing, something along those lines? How, how are you different from other people working in the same overarching umbrella building 
So an RT, respiratory therapist, is essentially um, um, a critical care specialist in the cardiopulmonary system. So we deal with anytime oxygen is involved, we are there. So that can be anyone from having nasal prongs, just very low oxygen all the way to um, a ventilator with very sick patients, very advanced ventilator settings. So it's a continuum and a range of the amount of people and the types of diseases and things we see. So um, RTs will work all over the hospital, which is kind of different than other nurses. Some nurses will be ward nurses and there's ICU nurses and eMERGE nurses. And those are specialties that are um, obtained like through further education. But an RT is actually one of the only allied healthcare professions that can go straight into critical care um, post-university. So we typically start in ICU. Um, but an RT kind of encompasses so many other things besides a lot of people will ask if we're just lung nurses, which I have many issues with that uh, question because I think it, 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 I don't know, it implies some people that have asked me, let, let's just say, if it's just like a friend being like, so are you like a lung nurse? Like that's totally fine. But I think when someone says that they're using nurse in like a demeaning, like female way, like, oh, you must be a nurse. You can't be anything else. And then also throw in lung and just like undermine the title that you just said. But um, I really like that being that aside, explaining what we do is something that we do a lot because not many people know that we exist as a profession at all. And I think the COVID pandemic is what made people start thinking about other healthcare professions outside of being a doctor or a nurse. But uh, we've definitely been there from the very beginning of the, the COVID wave and still now. <laughs> so yeah. People still need oxygen, I've heard. Right. I don't know if I explained that great, but... <laughs> oh, I think you did a very good job. Uh, I, would, I would actually like to talk about, because you, you said that you're the only profession that goes from, say, your bachelor's degree straight into, straight into the ICU, if I got that correct. I think, I think that's what I read okay. one time, so I mm -hmm. don't quote me on it completely, but I don't see, like, currently right now, I haven't seen any other profession that does that around mm -hmm. me. And so what was your experience coming out of university into COVID? Oh, man, it was so weird. It was really whack. I don't know. I was, what was like finishing... the whole process. Yeah. Yeah, it was like we did one year of clinical after you can do the degree stream or the diploma stream at TRU. So the diploma stream is uh, two years of schooling and then the third year is your clinical year. And then degree is what I did. I did three years and then the fourth year being my clinical and I got a health science degree with that. So your clinical year is um, separated into three different parts. You go to two main, big lower mainland hospitals and then everybody has to go through BC Children's for a month. So by then it was around mm, February-ish. We had just got done our like interview rounds. So the program kind of schedules this thing where around February, everybody like applies to all the main hospitals. They've 
seen or been to or interested in or even out of province. And then you all get kind of interviewed around the same three-week period or so. And then there's a callback day. And that's just for first round um, sites that want to hire those students right away, will offer right away. But that doesn't mean you wouldn't get a job afterwards. It's just like the timeline of the way the program works. So I think, I can't even remember, I think it was like late February, I had gotten my offers and I had chosen VGH um, on that day. And then a week later or something like that, we were supposed to have, I can't even remember, it was so long ago. A week later, we were supposed to have our, um, like one of our regular clinical shifts. And we were just told that program-wide, we were, we all had the day off because of COVID and that the, the tier U was kind of talking to the hospitals about how we don't have like liability insurance if we got sick from COVID. Um, we weren't getting paid as students either. So we were all like, oh, sick, <laughs> like a day off, like this is dope. And then the next day we got an email being like, okay, so if you have, if you passed your first midterm of the second semester and you finish your BC Children's rotation, um, you're graduated now, bye. <laughs> like, it was like, you're done. And I couldn't believe my eyes. I was like, what the fuck? I had about two and a half months left, maybe like three months left of clinical. I still hadn't had some shifts in like uh, ICU. I still hadn't had like another set in Emerge. And like we were rotating through different areas. And then a couple days later, we got emails from our managers being like, if you qualify and like you've passed and everything I need your like proof of completion blah blah blah. and can you start next week and it was like mid-march and I don't know I feel like mid-march was when things started really popping like everybody started realizing that like COVID was a thing and I'm just sitting there like what (laughs) no 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 (laughs) and I just started right away like I had my first day a week later and then I had, I think, two buddy shifts where you're paired up with another RT. And they will, like, I started in ICU as well for my first couple of shifts and everything. So I was with a buddy for the first day or two days. I don't even think I got two days. But they were all happy that I was there for level two of my clinical. So they were like, you probably know everything by now. Like, you'll get lots of support. Like, when you start out, like, don't even worry. Like, everyone is here for questions. And then, my first patients on my first day alone were five COVID patients (laughs) that were all very sick. And um, I was kind of terrified. And that was like the process timeline. So getting thrown into that, how do you think, what do you think the psychological impact of that was going from your halfway through your semester, you've completed one midterm, and now you're being told, okay, you're off to the hospital. And <laughs> kind of going into that also, how, how do you think that down the line that impacts burnout and, and um, yeah, that psychological stressor of being kind of out of the frying pan into the fire. And now you're part of this massive epidemic, uh, road pandemic rather. And so you're part of a pandemic and your, your graduation has been cut short. And now you've graduated, you're thrown right into it. How, how do you think that that impacted burnout later on? And even what was the, 
what was the psychological state going into your first shift and later on going into later shifts? And do you think you learn more quickly from the experience? Because I do know that there, there are some schools that are, are practicing a more practical approach rather than a, um, an approach of theory. So people are spending more time actually in hospitals and in real life situations rather than learning the terminology. So they're learning it firsthand rather than through study. So I think the shitty thing about RT in tier U is, I don't know if it's like a logistical thing, but um, we're not like nursing where we get to go to school for one week and then we go to clinical and then you go back to school and it's like throughout your entire studies. Um, ours is three or two years straight learning in the, in the books. And then it's like one full year of apply everything. And I think clinical year itself, um, not getting paid, it's a social game. You're trying to get hired at the end of it. You're trying to get everybody to like you. You're trying to be very knowledgeable. You're trying to do your job properly. You're trying to learn absolutely everything. Um, I think it really burnt all of us out at the end of the year. As for the acceleration of our program and going into the pandemic, um, I would say as a whole, it was very stressful for a lot of people. But I guess I can only speak from my experience. But I, I was, I think, ready to go. I think I'm just more um, an adaptive person. And I, I really like, um, I really like the sense of urgency, which is why I think I wanted to be in this profession in a dynamic situation and critical care, that kind of thing. So for me, I was really nervous for sure but I wouldn't say I was like shaking or like feeling like I woke up the first day of my shift being like I don't want to go because COVID I was like let's go <laughs> like, it was so ridiculous um but I think overall our class that graduated because tier U is the only school in British Columbia that does respiratory therapy and it always sounds snobby when I say this, but I believe like, I think it is um, the best in Canada because if you're going to use test marks to evaluate the best school, it would be TRU for the registry exam, for the board exam to get your license. Um, so we learn a lot of stuff at that um, place, but I feel like our class itself clinically and textbook and knowledge wise was a very strong class. Um, so we all ended up managing, we all ended up getting jobs, but I definitely think it affected us in some way. Like that rush is not, you can't ignore that kind of rush and that kind of, uh, that amount of pressure as well to perform and that, uh, that amount of pressure as well, that it's not even just your own performance and your own, you know, work is work. You still want to do well. You still want to like prove yourself, all this external stuff. But at the end of the day, you're also working with like the fucking sickest people I've ever seen in my life. Like, mm -hmm. so that's like another pressure on top of it. So it was just more, the combination of the two was very, um, I felt like I was in like, how do I say it? Felt like I was tripped out the whole time. Like I'm not I'm not gonna lie. Like first four months, I was like, "Whoa!" <laughs> and um, in the ICU, there's only there's like some airborne rooms that we would put all the COVID patients in, and it was 
between me and someone else that got hired, um, Justine, a classmate of mine, and she was living with her grandma at the time in an apartment. And I remember this, it's like a core memory of mine. We were right outside the rooms because we're supposed to do shift report and you're supposed to go with the RT that was on nights. And then the night RT will tell you what happened all night with the people you're going to take care of for your set. And we looked at each other and they're like, who wants the COVIDs? And I was like, and I looked at Justine and I'm like, you still live with your grandma, right? Like she, you haven't moved out yet. And she's like, yeah, I haven't. And we just like, there was this moment of silence between the two of us. And it was our very first day alone ever. And I was like, fuck, I'll take him. And like, we just split up. And it was like this weird, like surreal, I don't even know. And then, uh, they were really sick and I had to start really advanced stuff that I was not entirely comfortable with, but I had people talking to me with, through the intercom with the walkie and I'm like in my PPE being like, like, I, where does this go again? And they're like, it's on the dry side of the ventilator on like the expiratory filter. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so what were the, yeah, that, that, that's a crazy story. Um, <laughs> Props to you for taking that. I don't think that there are a lot of people that would have done that, but I I had at that at that point knew that we were going into COVID. And I luckily my family has um, a basement suite area. It, it was an old office and we had already the week before I started at VGH, I had cleared out the entire office and moved my entire bedroom and everything downstairs. And uh was on full lockdown. I was not going upstairs to eat with my family. They were coming, they were putting food at the top of the stairs at this little desk thing, and I would go downstairs and eat it myself. I full on did the separate entrance and everything. And it was kind of fucked up for a while. Like I was very lonely downstairs. So how long were you how long were you in isolation? When did that start to become a more lifted started- restriction? Yeah, so I started coming up a little bit more, like to make a coffee or like, I would just, I would still go upstairs. I would just have to announce myself and tell everyone to like move away. But I got a little bit more lax, I think six months in, but I was like pretty hardcore for like six months. I mean, I'm still down here now. (laughs) This is the basement. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So it's just been a roller coaster can't even believe it's been a year. I started my year with a COVID patient and March 28th was my very first day, I think. And I had <laughs> that shift on the 27th night and then tied over to the AM on the 28th. It was my one year anniversary of working and I was in the COVID unit. And I was like, wow, wow. <laughs> like, <laughs> How has the COVID unit changed over the past year? Um... We've gotten, we've learned a lot along the way. All of our COVID protocols as a hospital in general um, has changed over and over again. But the COVID unit, we've opened up about five different spots in the hospital. And I've been in every single COVID unit we've ever had because they'll change it from like one section and then then they'll they'll close it because if we have like less than a certain amount of patients, then we have enough staff in the main ICU to do it. It's like all this logistical stuff, but um, I, have, I have been in every single one, which is 
either a cool fact or a very depressing fact. You're a warrior. <laughs> it, is, it feels weird. It feels mm. weird for sure. What do you mean by that? It feels weird. It just feels weird to be surrounded by that kind of energy for so long. And I, I completely understand where everyone's coming from that doesn't work in healthcare and how it's affecting mental health. And sometimes you, you just have to hang out with your friend, like for your own sake. But then uh, it's, it's hard to know that. And then to also know that every day you go to work, you're going to like see someone gasping for air because they are a COVID patient and there's nothing that you can do for them. Let's say their code status is that they don't allow you to intubate them, like put a tube down and put them on a ventilator. You hold their hand and they just, you can't do anything for them. And there's been many patients that I've had that are COVID that I've literally just been in all of my shit. They don't even know what I look like. And I'm just like with them and they're gasping and they pass away in front of me. Like, it's just, it's so horrible. Like, so I understand the whole restrictions are cramping everyone's style and stuff. And it is cramping mine too. But I just think about that two month period where I was seeing probably two people die per day or like more. And yeah, I don't even know how I got to that. Did it, was that a tangent? <laughs> like, am I even, am I just talking out loud at this point? You're doing great. You're seriously, you're, you're doing great. I've never been recorded on a podcast before. <laughs> no, you're doing amazing. I really appreciate your, your vulnerability. I think that's really important to me. I'll be very vulnerable with you and anything you ask oh. me, I'll, I'll tell you the answer. I'll never lie to you. And so I, I appreciate that you're being vulnerable because obviously this is a vulnerable topic. And um, if you don't mind diving more into it, I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about mortality and how how you experience that as a as an RT being kind of the the last line for people. So, an RT is typically the person that movie theaters have coined the term as pulling the plug. So, an RT will be the last per, will be the last one to like pull life support, like remove life support. So, if someone is on a ventilator. They are comfort care. The family has decided um, with the doctors and, and everything that's going on that this patient, um, I don't know how to say it. It's like time for them to go, let's say. Then they'll get a bunch of comfort care drugs, like a lot of morphine for the pain and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's really good. But they still need to come off the ventilator. So um, that's our role that we will explain to a family that that's what we're going to do. And usually the family will step out or they'll be in the room and watch. And you essentially take the last thing that's keeping their loved one alive. And you're the monster that's pulling it out. But I don't view myself as a monster ever when I'm at work because anytime we let someone go or we remove care or anything like that it's because we've done everything we can so that gives me a lot of peace knowing that um 
yeah, that that's what we're doing. And it's not like at the beginning, I was like, oh my God, I'm like killing people. Like I'm literally, you know, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and then yeah. you, yeah. And you just, then you start thinking about it and you're like, no, we, we did two hours of an, we ran a code for two hours and I did CPR like three times. And I begged this person for an hour on the, on hundred percent oxygen. And we like intubated them. We did literally everything. And now their blood pressure is shot and we're using mass and mass amounts of like drugs to artificially like make this person's blood pressure go up. But like without us, they, their body would never do this on their own. So at that point, you're kind of like, okay, like there's nothing else that we can do. And it sounds horrible, but I've kind of gotten used to it. Um, but what I try and remind myself is that the rate at which people die every day in my career lifetime of one year, this is an abnormal increased rate. Because for me, it's normal. But if I were working two, three years ago, like, sure, people die every day, and I understand that. But the, the number and the speed in which they die is, like, is heightened. Like, it, it's, so I've normalized something that's very not normal kind of thing yeah, yeah right yeah i definitely understand we're in the middle of a pandemic so you kind of have a a number that exceeds the norm for mortality in hospitals especially due to kind of what your profession is in respiratory therapy and mm -hmm. so how, do, how does COVID actually attack the body what was your experience for the first for the for the first bit of COVID, and now a year later how is the how has the treatment changed and improved um but I, i'd love to know first off what how COVID actually um manifests itself in the body and the the impact that it has on the lungs and maybe the rest of the the system even even the neuro neurology of it if you know anything about that i don't know anything about actually mm, a little bit about the neurology but so covid obviously coughing sneezing sharing food mucosa to mucosa like kissing and spit and spray that kind of stuff and it will be it'll go into your epithelium and then it'll like kind of spread i'm not like great at the whole microness of all of that but i'll just talk about i guess the anatomical changes that someone would experience in a severe covid so sure. some people don't get super fucked up from it because i don't know they're young but like i'm not i have seen 20 year olds i have seen 30 year olds 40 year olds and i'm actually seeing them more now so i see 20s to 50s right now whereas before i was seeing more 50 to 70 and then like the 80 year old grandpa that got visited by their niece off spring break you know like that kind of thing it was older for sure but i do not think age protects you whatsoever i don't think so especially if you vape and do all like the normal young adult stuff like drinking and like whatever anyways <laughs> so covid will create a pro-inflammatory state in your lungs called ARDS. ARDS is acute respiratory distress syndrome, and it is a blanket term. Well, it's not blanket. It's a very specific categorized state um, and diagnosis that will be made. And it can, can be caused by a variety of things like COVID is the main one today, 
or even any type of necrotizing pneumonia or inhalational toxicity, drowning, anything that makes your lung, um, any widespread infection can impact your lungs, any type of, um, I essentially, when I have like students following me for the day, I'll just say like anything that makes your lung shitty and full is going to make that kind of state happen. So whether it's edema, like fluid filled stuff or pneumonia, your lungs are filled with pus and like consolidation and gross yucky bacteria or you drowned and you have muddy water in your lungs or you have a virus that infiltrates your lungs. It'll create a state called ARDS, which has different stages. Um, um, There's like moderate and severe and there's different classifications. So when people say that you have COVID and it made your lungs bad, COVID is the cause, but COVID is not the diagnosis, or it is the diagnosis, but it's not the descriptor we would use when we try and ventilate you or when we try and do things in your care. So it, their x-rays will look, normal x-rays um, will look nice and black and clear. Black is just um, air. And then if you see white on an x-ray, it's just the absorption of the light, which means there's stuff in there. So COVID lungs will look like trash, honestly. There's just webs and consolidation spots. And it looks very, um, we have a term called ground glass. Um, Just looks like if you just took a piece of glass and shattered it on the ground and then put a bunch of like, I don't know, dirt on top like it just like looks all muddled looks all it looks wrong um there's a special way to kind of look through an x-ray look through a ct chest and kind of see what it looks like it's um your lungs are very damaged but they're also there's also um the reason why covid is so interesting is because typical ARDS is very um restrictive very you have tight damaged lungs that are collapsed in different areas it's heterogeneous it's you have all these different kinds of processes but then there was a point in which we had with our covid patients that their lungs would look like that but their lungs were also hyper compliant which means they were way more stretchy than you would think um, a disease that destroys your lungs you'd think it would make it tight and small and like increase your pressures in your in your lungs it was just like very odd the way that it attacked the body but um essentially ARDS would be like the classification of ARDS is like within a week you have a, a within a week of clinical insult you have like bilateral opacities everywhere in your lungs so that means on both sides you're having big clumps of stuff that shouldn't be there And then um, it's also like determined by certain things, like different ratios. And I don't know how how deep I should go into it, but um, COVID is very malignant and it's very fast. And I don't think people understand that we don't have a cure. When you're on a ventilator, we're just trying to protect and rest your lungs but we're not trying to fix them. We can't fix them with ventilation. We can 
manipulate the settings on a ventilator in a way where your lung will not have to do any work. And when we can rest different parts of the body and fix them in different ways, we're hoping as a, as a group effort, it can make your chances of surviving increase. So COVID will affect your, your lungs, your, your um, blood pressure, and like nurses will give you drugs to make your blood pressure go up so your organs can be properly perfused. And then RTs are going to try and rest your lungs and make sure that your lungs are being protectively ventilated and not your classic way of ventilating a regular patient. And then there's steroids and different drugs that are being put in COVID patients as well. And we're watching different levels and biomarkers to see like we've gotten enough information to know when someone is at their peak COVID. So that's usually around the seven to 12 day mark is when they're really like going through it the worst. So we'll keep people intubated and we essentially keep them intubated until we ride it out. And then we start lowering the sedation and seeing where we're at and that kind of thing. So it's, it's very scary. And I think if people were able to see how rough it really looks, they wouldn't want to do all the things they want to do right now. But for patient confidentiality reasons and privacy reasons, they can't be displaying that kind of stuff on TV. But it's horrifying. Like, I've normalized it because it's my job to be around vents and CRT machines, which are kidney machines, and like pumps that are like this wide and like the lines and everything. And I'm like, well, that's normal. That's like pretty chill, but it would look terrifying to the general public. It's, it's just, I think I explained that in a way that if any of my RT friends were to watch this, they'd be like, oh, is he like, you didn't even explain it right. <laughs> but I think for this podcast, it, it's like, should be okay. But I definitely, definitely didn't just, didn't explain that. <laughs> I, I think you did a great job. If, okay, if you, well, I'm glad. I'm glad. No, I, I, I think, I think I'm, I think I'm keeping up. I tried to do as much research as I could before this so I could, so that I could keep up. Um, so with ARDS, it's essentially the, the introduction of foreign bodies into the lung system. And then that, that widespread has, inflammation, widespread vasodilatory mechanisms, and no. also constriction in different portions, and also atelectasis, which is a collapsed lung. So collapsed lung units can't exchange um, oxygen anymore with the body. So now we're doing all these crazy things, like you probably heard of proning, where we're flipping people on their stomachs to increase perfusion to better better areas. And also we're using nitric oxide, which is a special... Um, pulmonary vasodilator gas when you put it in with the ventilator and with oxygen and with their breaths that they're getting so every patient that's on nitric every breath they get also gets 40 parts per million of nitric nitric that is a special gas that will um is supposed to um selectively vasodilate um, so you have your alveoli, which is one lung unit, mm-hmm. and your lung is full of a billion of these lung units, and each lung unit will have a capillary network over it, so blood vessels that will supply that one thing. And gas exchange occurs when you breathe in and your lung unit fills. And right here, 
um, there's this thing called a, an AC membrane, the alveolar capillary membrane. So when they take a breath and it fills up with oxygen, that oxygen is going to exchange between that vessel and that lung unit. And then when it gets into your blood, it gets to go to the rest of your body and you, you know, to your brain and all these functions that we have for daily living. Um, so when those lung units collapse or when that, those lung units are damaged of any sort, that um, mechanism is interfered with. And then as a result, you'll have a decrease in oxygen. And then a decrease in oxygen can be a variety of things um, that can go wrong. So you can go into hypoxemic rest failure because your body needs oxygen. So it will go into respiratory failure or eventually you'll go into um, hypercarbic failure because you're not exchanging oxygen properly. You're probably not exchanging at all very well. So your CO2 is going to build up in your blood as well and CO2 building up in your blood. Then all of that stuff will happen. Then you're, you'll start to pass out because you'll lose consciousness. And also when the body is, has no oxygen, it will go into this metabolism called anaerobic metabolism. And we probably all learned that in like grade 10 science, those organisms that like to, like some organisms can thrive, like with no oxygen, some thrive with oxygen. And we obviously thrive with oxygen. So when our body goes into that anaerobic metabolism, it'll produce this byproduct called lactate. And lactate will increase. And those those levels are all really dangerous when they get too high. And those are all similar, that will all lead to some kind of arrest scenario or critical code blue scenario per se. But the reason why COVID is so weird is there's new and new research every day and stuff that we used to think would help. We're learning that it might not, especially with the variants coming in as well. So nitric oxide or nit Nitrous oxide, Nit no, 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 nitric oxide, not yeah. nitrous. That's laughing gas. Um, nitric oxide used to improve oxygenation for our patients that are um, not in entirely COVID, let's say like another type of disease process where they have really low oxygen and we need like um, adjunctive therapy to increase that. There's actually a new study that came out, um, I think, two weeks ago that was saying that nitric oxide might actually um, not help COVID, if anything, like might actually, there was like limited findings that it might actually um, hurt them a bit more mm. because, uh, oh, that's, that's, a, that's a heavy one. I was learning that one too, but we're learning new things every day that change and Part of it's really scary because we're trying to keep up, but we're also trying to use the things we have. And um, not all the time does it work out. Right. Well, I'm sure there's a relationship between the things that you think will work and whether they actually work or whether they're more detrimental because something as novel as COVID. And what I, I find really interesting is that that hyper-flexible orientation of the lungs after getting COVID where, as you said, you would suspect that it would, it would actually constrict the lungs, but in this case, it's made them more flexible for whatever reason, if I'm getting that right. Yeah. More flexible as in floppy. So like it might sound better that your lungs are stretchier and they can be like, you know, if they're stretchier, then you can breathe bigger and not really, it's like stretchy bad. <laughs> right. So not, not necessarily strong, stretchy, but 
stretchy as in the the losing of form maybe would be a good way to describe that yes yes yeah and kind of that that relationship where you you don't exactly know how to treat this thing and it's so novel and in in the position of a healthcare professional it's your it's the hyper compliance isn't something that changes the way we do things but i guess it was more of a outstanding characteristic that was more like whoa you don't actually know what the fuck this does to your lungs mm -hmm. does it change the way i ventilate someone because they're more hyper compliant like it, it that's not really like the main thing of covid they are still in um, that acute respiratory distress state that pro-inflammatory hard to ventilate high pulmonary pressures because the shit in there that doesn't belong Mm -hmm. There's stuff that's collapsed that shouldn't be collapsed. So overall in that container that is your lungs, when there's more stuff in it, your overall pressure in that same container box is going to go up. So when you're ventilating someone, you can't give them like certain volumes that you would a normal patient because we control every part of the breathing. We'll do volume, we'll do rate, we'll do how long you breathe in, how short you're going to breathe in, how fast is that breath going to come in, how much oxygen are you going to get per breath. There's all these different types of settings that will change depending, depending on the patient that you work with and depending on what state their lungs are in. And if you have someone that has what we call like high um, pressures in the lungs, it's going to change the way you ventilate them and it's going to change the way you protectively ventilate them as well. Um, I think I'm not good at remember. I'm not the best at like pathology in terms of like, I can think it in my head when I'm doing stuff, mm -hmm. but I think you might find it more interesting if I talk about how we ventilate ARDS patients, how we ventilate COVID patients. Because I think right now I'm kind of pooched in the whole COVID explanation because I've just been around it so long that I've stopped thinking about it. Mm -hmm. I've, I've, I've moved on to more application of theory rather than like trying to read studies on like what protein enzyme is like making it. Like I, I'm not very good at that. So I'm going to say I might have butchered that explanation of COVID. So I do encourage everyone to Google it and um, not rely on me <laughs> but yeah it's very scary yeah i don't know i i think you've you've done a very good job thus far um i was wondering about hyperoxygenation i'm not sure if i pronounced that right hyperoxygenation and because that can in, in some way that can activate the the sympathetic nervous system and that's one of the means for tumo breathing, which is a, a Tibetan form of Buddhist breathing where you're, you're doing exactly that. You're hyper-oxygenating your, your blood and your body, and that activates your, your sympathetic nervous system. You're doing this all through breath, so you're taking deeper inhales than exhales and very rapidly. So I'm not sure if people can hear that. I hope they can. Um, I'm not sure if you can hear that. But... The idea is that, so so they actually do this as a competition between themselves where they'll stack wet blankets around them and on them. And it's a competition to see who can dry out blankets by increasing their internal body temperature in below freezing conditions. And, and this is also a way that you can... Below uh, freezing. Below freezing, yeah. To to dry out the blanket 
or yes, to the, freeze the blood. So, so they have wet blankets on them and they, they do this hyperoxygenation and activate their sympathetic nervous system. And that heats up their body to an extent that they can actually dry out blankets in below freezing temperatures. So oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So the competition mm -hmm. is to see who can dry the most blankets. That's their flex. And, and that, that's, flex. yeah, exactly. And that's also a way that you can help to fight infection because that's the, that's the natural mechanism at play when you have a fever is you get really hot and that's your way to, to stave off that fever. So I'm wondering if you guys maybe implement that. And that this is all off the top of my head theory stuff, but mm -hmm. maybe that's a, that's something that you guys implement with the ventilators is increasing the ratio of breath to exhale or I guess you'd inhale to exhale. I'm following, but I'm going to say no. Mm -hmm. Well, I wasn't <laughs> sure. Like, yeah, no, no, no. No, no, I, no, no. I'm like trying to think why, because they must have dried out the blankets, I'm sure. So mm -hmm. I'm wondering how they dried that out. I don't know. But um, because their body temperature gets so hot. Right. But I don't know how, I'm not sure how breathing would increase. I don't know that part. Mm -hmm. But I would say in the amount, in the atmosphere, you have 21% oxygen. So when they're breathing fast, they're not hyper oxygenating themselves. They are not giving themselves more oxygen by taking more breaths. You're getting the same percentage of oxygen per breath. So when they are doing that, it's hyperventilation. So mm -hmm. um, we have these things called arterial blood gases Every time you take a sample of an arterial blood, there is certain, there's a certain normal range for pH, CO2, O2, bicarbonate, and then there's a saturation inside the blood of um, how many hemoglobins are carrying oxygen, the carrying capacity of your blood for um, O2. So when they are, and this is what a lot of an RT does, when we ventilate someone, we are ventilating to these specific numbers, a blood gas. So I'm assuming this practice, when they are hyperventilating, they're doing this thing where they're putting themselves in respiratory alkalosis. So they are breathing off at a fast rate their CO2. So they're breathing out their CO2 to be below the normal level. So I don't know, it might be easier to write it down and visualize it. So the perfect gas would be 7.35 to 7.45. CO2 would be 35 to 45. O2 would be 80 to 100. Bicarbonate would be from 22 to 26. And um, saturation greater than 92 would be perfect. So when they are hyperventilating, they are hyperventilating themselves to CO2 is the normal range is 35 to 45. Let's use 40 as the perfect example. So if your CO2 is like chilling at 40, you're a perfect human, and then all of a sudden you start breathing really fast, you're blowing that off. So you're bringing yourself down to a more alkalotic state than an acidotic state. Mm -hmm. So when you blow off your CO2 closer down to the 35, down to the 30 range, your pH is going to going to correlate with that fluctuation in CO2. So your pH is actually going to go more on the 7.45 and above side rather than acidic 7.35 and below, which is like 7.2, 7.1. We All of our like little science classes, we used to do that. So when you blow off your own CO2 to the point where you go into respiratory alkalosis, which is determined by um, having a normal bicarbonate and then having a lower CO2 and therefore having a higher pH, an alkalotic pH, 
then you run into a whole different set of problems. But I'm not sure how respiratory alkalosis would increase heat in your body. Because what I know is that when you have increased CO2, so not less like that point we were just talking about, if you have increased CO2, so 35 to 45 is normal, so you get more than 45, usually um, that will produce, like CO2 retention, that mm. will produce more heat. So from what I know, I, that's why I'm not able to answer why would a hyperventilatory state cause you to increase heat in order to dry those blankets? Because it really shouldn't. So I don't know what kind of like magic they got going on there, but um, when you're sick, your temp is up, your consume, your body, your oxygen consumption is up, your CO2 builds. Those are the things that don't make you hot, but that's all the stuff that comes with producing more heat if that makes sense. So I don't, I don't really know what's going on with that, that one. Um, yeah. I would like to read up on that though. That's kind of random, it's but you know, back then, like people are, they're doing all this kinds of stuff that we can't really explain these days anyway. So I wouldn't really be surprised, but there must be some kind of answer, but I just don't have it. It's still happening. Well, I think it's, I think it's associated with the, um... I would say it's, it's somewhat associated with the anxiety mm-hmm. system. So that feeling of, of getting warm when anxious, I think that there's some association there between the, the increased rate of breath. And yeah, I know that it's a, it's a long process. I think it's in the, they're, they're kind of 20 steps that you have to follow. It's, it's more than that, obviously. That's just a, a throat number, but it's around 20 to 25, I think. And so... Yeah, because I know there's that Wim Hof guy so that's exactly like, it. Yeah, Wim yeah. Hof actually. So he got so Wim Hof breathing is a, a form of tumo breathing, which he got from these Tibetan monks. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I told you that I weirdly served him drinks, right? Like I served his private what? party. No. Yeah. I didn't even know who this man was, and I just knew I was working a private party for the Ice Man, and I was like, "Who the fuck is an Ice Man?" This was like four years ago when I worked at Tap and Barrel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like they uh rented the building next door i guess and then it was just some like old guy and then a bunch of like i was surprised like adults mm-hmm. like all sitting around and he's like <laughs> and they're all like whoa and there's like a powerpoint i'm sitting there like i feel like want to fucking go home and i didn't realize it was like the guy and it was wim hof and they took him they, he took everybody that was in his little party to go outside in the snow barefoot mm-hmm. and do the breathing and i just remember being like what is this guy on like Whatever, I'm getting paid more to serve this party, but okay. <laughs> this is kind of funny. Wow, that's I, really interesting. Yeah, he was in Vancouver, like North Van, like mm-hmm. super weird. Wow, crazy. <laughs> that's that's actually super interesting. Yeah, that's kind, <laughs> right. of, that's kind of his whole thing is breathing and um, getting past mental states of mind to to kind of tap into a more physical. I guess, I guess you'd say physical perception of the world where mm. you can, you can overcome the, maybe the thought of being cold, like getting into, getting into a cold shower, doing ice baths and kind of increasing your ability to experience adversity through a physical means. And then I think that translates into a psychological means as well. Unless I'm like remembering my shit wrong. Like I, I just can't 
with the theories that I have in my brain, I can't make out why someone in respiratory alkalosis would be able to warm up a frozen blanket. Like, I, I just, I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, high CO2, high, C low CO2. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> it, I, I think it's, I think it's very cool. I think it's a, it is, yeah. I think it's a something that's being studied a lot more now, and so I, I kind of want to jump back on on the track of yeah, sure, of, of what COVID <laughs> does to people. Um, how is what is the change been from a year ago to now? Seeing COVID patients now, are you guys have you guys developed? And I guess that's kind of what I was getting at earlier was the as a, as a medical professional, your job is to do everything that you can in the moment, and then there's always a a 2020 hindsight bias of, Oh, we were doing the wrong thing, but it's, it's your, it's your duty at the time to take all of the information that you have and implement that appropriately. So how has, what, have, what, have, how have the precautions changed? And man, <laughs> it's changed so much. My RT role hasn't, but the doctors and everybody those people they all the knowledge that we've gained throughout this year they're able to assess when a covid patient isn't ready to be extubated simply because this one marker is a little higher so they know that th there's going to be this thing called a cytokine storm coming so they're not ready to if we extubate them, if we take the tube out now, they're going to fail and we're going to have to put it back in. They're getting really good at knowing. What? Sorry. No, it's okay. My charge just texted me. It is for a day shift. Okay, weird. Sorry, work stuff. Um, what was I saying? You were talking oh, about the, the cytokine storm. Yeah, so they're getting really good at predicting when things are going to be really bad or when patients are ready for the next step or whatever. But in terms of the protocol changes, um, especially in eMERGE, that's how everybody enters the hospital. They'll come in through with EHS, emergency health services and paramedics, they'll come to our trauma bay. We will get told 10 minutes before um, if this person seems COVID-y, if they're, you know, they were near someone that was positive, they're breathing really fast, their oxygen requirements are going up, they look kind of shitty, then we all are like COVID. We might, it might be a COVID patient. So they'll come in, go straight to an airborne room. And at the beginning of the year, it used to be, so different oxygen therapies have different ranges of oxygen. So nasal prongs, like the, the things that go in your nose in like the movies and people are like, oh, like they look so sick. But when I watch medical shows, I'm like, you're on nasal prongs. You're not that sick. Anyways. <laughs> Um, that has a maximum of six liters of oxygen. Six liters per minute of oxygen is the maximum that you can deliver with that device anymore. It's not really the right device to be giving that amount. Um, 
And then we can move from nasal prongs, we can move to high flow nasal prongs. So that will be a larger capability. So like eight liters to about eight liters per minute to 15 liters per minute. But we usually skip that straight stage and go straight to OptiFlow, which is a high flow oxygen delivery device. Um, high flow versus low flow means low flow, like things like the patient taking shallower breaths, bigger breaths or whatever will affect the oxygen delivery. Whereas high flow, the word high flow means that it's fixed. No matter what happens, that amount of oxygen, you're going to achieve it. And it's like on this toggle that you can see the percentage. So we'll go from nasal prongs, six liters. And if they need more, we'll go to OptiFlow, which is that other high flow device. So at the beginning of the pandemic, it used to be for the safety of the staff, because at certain... <laughs> at certain... Um, higher flows of oxygen is considered to be aerosolizing so it would aerosolize particles and sprays that would contain covid there's a lot of drama between whether opti flow is aerosolizing or not it is not according to me <laughs> but and then there's other things called bipap it's a non-invasive um non-invasive like positive pressure ventilation. So it used to be if anybody that was suspected to be COVID greater than six liters per minute on nasal prongs, you're getting fucking tubed like right away. Just so we have like a closed system, the balloon is inflated, you're on a tube, you're on a circuit, you're connected to a ventilator with a filter all around, you're not spraying it everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it was when we didn't know what was going on because if we can tube you, state, sedate you, paralyze you get you stabilized we can now look at everything else and we're not worried that you're going to crash while we're like doing all these other things we've controlled you to the point and we can reverse that later and that's it doesn't it sounds really savage but like that that is actually the if you want to be saved that's the best way to go because that is just we will try and do as minimally invasive things um to help out your situation. But if your situation calls for like the whole nine yards, we'll do all of that. So it used to be that, but now it's actually changed and it's evolved that it's not nasal prong six liters you're gonna immediately intubate. We're immediately intubating for different reasons like decrease, decrease level of consciousness or very high work of breathing. Like you're working out to the point you can tell they're going to fatigue themselves because of how hard they're working hard to breathe. You'll, every human has a threshold point that they will stop and fatigue out and stop breathing. Or for really, really low oxygen. Like if you are on a high amount of oxygen at 100%, but your saturations are still 80s, we're going to intubate you. But if you were managing on six liters nasal prongs, but you need more oxygen, Nowadays, we put you on OptiFlow and we kind of like wait out and see how much you need. And if you get to that certain point on OptiFlow as well, where you're doing 100% or 80% and you're still nowhere near an acceptable saturation for a regular person, we'll intubate you then too. But it's not as immediate as it was before. It used to be like, oh my God, six liters? RT, come down. We're going to tube. <laughs> like, um, so it, it's very different now. And um, the PPE and the protocols of when is someone on airborne precautions? When is someone on droplets? Just regular face masks with the face shield. When are they airborne, which is N95 face shield and everything. 
or when are they contact when it's just gown and gloves like all of those differentiations have changed as well as the use of BiPAP which is a non-invasive positive pressure ventilation device um, that is supposed to be more spraying so patients on BiPAP they now in our hospital if they are suspected to be COVID or are confirmed positive but they're not at that point where we're putting a tube down their throat whether because it's related to code status they don't want that in their wishes or it's not indicated quite yet we think we can take them away from that point and they need BiPAP that all has to be in a negative pressure private room if they are low risk for COVID a, a physician has looked at them and they've asked all these questions and they've deemed them as a low risk person or they are one neg negative swab that person can be on BiPAP in a private room on droplet precautions mm -hmm. so just so it's like all of those little tiny like dramatic logistical things in a in a hospital you need everybody on the same page you need all your nurses on like all your nurses all your rts all your residents all your doctors everybody needs to have that same protocol to follow so i'm not just putting bipap on for a person that's in a shared room with just curtains between patients you all like that has all changed over time and mm -hmm. it's still changing today it's super annoying but <laughs> that's the kind of stuff that is really um taking a big toll and honestly, that was one of the main points of burnout too, the constant changing of policies that caused a lot of stress for especially the eMERGE staff, I would say. Like, it's a lot of stress to, to know because every change in policy, you're like, is this, is this safer for me? Is this really safe? Like, can I trust this change in policy? Like, is this the best thing we can do right now for, to protect staff? And it used to be back then without COVID, um, if you happen to do CPR with no PPE. But now it used to be like, okay, your patient is crashing in front of you. Everybody put on PPE. Nobody touches that person until you're set up. Mm -hmm. And like that can be, that can, that can save you, very, that, or not save you, that can cost you very critical minutes. But nowadays it's like, well, if you guys all die, then the people that come in next, there's gonna be nobody to take care of those next people. So we have to preserve the people, your staff, in order to keep this whole thing running. Because if you have more and more staff get sick, like your entire population will suffer as a result of that. So all of that's kind of changed too, the PPE protocol and doffing, taking it, taking it off, putting it on, all of those, like the steps in like how to be very careful when you take it off. Cause that's when your exposure to COVID is highest, when you're taking off your stuff, not when you're in the room wearing your stuff. Mm -hmm. It's when you hastily take your stuff off and don't wash your hands between every step. Take off both your gloves, wash your hands, take off your gown, wash your hands, hold your breath, pull your mask off, tip it off your head that kind of stuff like that's why a lot of the long-term care staff and that those kinds of professions and long-term care homes and stuff like that they didn't get enough training and i think that's where that's where they they fell short so that in a bunch of words is how a lot of things have changed <laughs> that that's a that's a very interesting philosophical idea of taking care of the medical practitioners before the patients because i do agree that's a 
kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't, where you have a patient crashing on the table and you need to make a decision between save this patient now or everyone goes and puts on their PPE. Like for me, I was at a code the other day and um, I was there first. I was like, okay, like anybody feeling for the pulse, like no pulse, like start CPR, get the CPR board. I've got the bagger and the mask on the person's face, but I'm not bagging them because when you push that amount of air and it's just a seal and it's not a closed seal down here with an endotracheal tube, you're essentially spraying whatever they have at a mm-hmm. very high pressure to everyone else. So you're holding it. And then my, the rest of the code team comes and my other RTs come and they go, Izzy, what do you need? I'm like, I need you to take over this mask seal because they've already put on their PPE. They take over and I step out and they start bagging and I put mine on and I come back in. So like, it's not like we are just letting someone go like this and we're all just like, wait, like we're all doing stuff, you know, people yeah, are still yeah, prepping cards, everything. But there is that moment where you're like, I'm not going to be the hero. I'm not going to just do whatever and just start CPR with no mask on. Because when you do CPR, you're pressing on them and you're, you're going to get sprayed. You don't see it, but you're going to get sprayed. So it's preserving the medical staff, not in the way of like, fuck you guys, like us first kind of thing. But it's definitely like if you're, you're outside your airborne room and your COVID patient is desaturating after you've turned them and they're desaturating really low, they need to be off the ventilator right now. And they need to be manually begged like right now. I'm not going to be running into that room with nothing on. I'm Mm -hmm. still going to take my time, look in the mirror, check myself take a breath and not rush putting on my PPE. Cause if I put it on wrong, I'm just going to be breathing it in when mm-hmm. I go in and then I'm just going to fuck everyone else when I come out and like eat in the break room and spread it to everyone else. Like it's just, it's a, it's a balance between doing your job and protecting yourself. Um, yeah. So, right. Yeah, no, of course I, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's the, that's the right way to go about it because you guys are, currently the first line in defending against a worldwide pandemic. What were the, what were the emotions when this first started and the, the healthcare professionals definitely got a big round of applause, I guess you could say literally. Um, What was your experience with that? Oh, it made me feel really nice. You know, I think I could have done without the discounts and stuff. I mean, that was cool. I like the free coffee. I think that was really dope. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the whole, like, heroes. And, like, we all kind of laughed about it at work, but we all, like, knew and really appreciated it, too. Like, because, like, a little, like, you know, work is work. Your, your friends are your friends, and you, you're, like, your friend, like, helps you do something, and you're, like, thanks, hero. And everyone's, like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> you know, like, there's yeah. stuff like that. But, honestly, the applause, like, made me cry. Like, it was it was hard. Like mm-hmm. I would say it's even harder now. So it's kind of funny. We got all of that stuff in the beginning because it was relatively calm in the beginning. Oh, but we're in the shit now. Like it is bad. Really? Yeah. Why it was bad in the beginning because mm-hmm. it was all new, but the numbers are just like way more than before. Like, Oh, the other night, this is abnormal. A normal ratio of patients to RT is five to one. In the COVID unit, I was dealing with seven ventilated patients and three non-ventilated. 
and I was the only like and I was just like oh my god I'm gonna pass out like and I leave and I leave work and I'm like oh well the applause is gone so I would have really <laughs> needed that one like this time <laughs> but honestly it was such like a rallying like beautiful thing especially it was kind of sunny then too you're like going home or you're on your off day like I think people don't realize at seven o'clock we're still giving reports. So it's not like the people that worked that day really hear it, but we hear it on our day off. So that's really nice. Mm -hmm. But um, it's really, it was really like really nice, especially if you had like five people die on you that day and you felt like shit and you feel dirty and gross because you're just like sweaty. And then you just like hear all these people like clapping for you and saying thank you. It like made me cry a little bit sometimes. And I was like, that's really nice. <laughs> but actually we were joking around last night. It was so funny. We're all talking about how slammed we are now and like how we are truly burnt out. Like we are understaffed like for the RT department at least. And you're going to need an RT for every COVID, right? <laughs> and we're like, we're like, oh, well thanks heroes and we're like what how happened to that like where's all of our encouragement like a half joke yeah. and then i did like this fake kick in the air and i was like do your fucking job now guys like nobody cares about you anymore <laughs> the novelty like, wore off yeah exactly we're all well like the, at the end of the day like we're gonna do the same high quality work whether or not we get appreciation for it mm -hmm. and um, I would say RTs are understaffed and underpaid. We are paid less, I think, than nursing. It is, for sure. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in other normal workplaces, people would strike, right? Like teachers strike, translink strikes. But for us, it's like we, we're not going to strike because if we disappear from the hospital for even one day, that is so fucked up like mm -hmm. so wrong for like the people that come in so we're just like sitting in the corner shaking like okay <laughs> everything's fine <laughs> but you know that's why when good team dynamic really you know morbid jokes good team dynamic like all in good fun kind of thing like those things kind of keep it light how do you use comedy as a coping mechanism Oh, for sure. For sure. Like, I'm not going to repeat the jokes because they're like, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I say. I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that you get the best care possible. And that's the same across all boards for everybody else. <laughs> like, even if we run our mouths sometimes or get annoyed or like, oh, I can't believe I'm so busy. Like, there's, you know, like, yeah. it'll, it'll still happen, right? So Yeah. <laughs> well, that's something that I, I think that I cope with humor a lot more than most people do. And it makes people uncomfortable a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. so, like, hey, man, how you doing? Yeah, just still learning to walk, you know. You're like, oh, yeah, how's that? Horrible. Sucks. Every day is just brutal. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Complex PTSD. It's it's all the rave right now. Oh. <laughs> I'll have people go like, how was work? And I just think back of everything I did. I'm like, well, it's good. They're like, oh, nice. Okay. Like, what do you want to eat today? I'm like, oh, well, I'll spare you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. But, I'm sure in your head it's like, well, I lost a couple of people and 
Oh, I lost. Didn't a get a break today. Yeah, literally didn't get a break. Two people died on me. Someone vomited on me, and then someone like beat me, <laughs> like kicked me in the stomach. That happened not every day, but that happened a month ago. And I was like, I'm just out here trying to do my job. How does and that I'm happen? Beat by patients. Like sometimes they get so delirious, they just like fucking whack you or something, and you're like, oh my god, I'm just like trying to go to your ventilator. <laughs> And it's just like your day is so dynamic and it's so ever-changing. And then there's other days where you're just chilling and like you're just doing your work and nothing's very um, crazy. And other days you'll have four codes in one day and you'll, some of them, you know, it's it's just very, um, I really like my job. Long story short, I'm very happy that I'm in the profession I'm in. I think for right now, this is what I want to do for a couple of years at least. But um, I like I like it a lot. I like the patient interaction. I like the team dynamic, and I like the mechanical aspect that I get. To, I get to work with a lot of equipment, mm-hmm. which is really cool. I like um, steps. <laughs> like I like painting because I like the, the I don't know how do you say it, dexterity of it mm-hmm. and I like ventilators because I like the beep bop boop <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean yeah yeah I totally know what you mean well I'm very good that we we have you on staff <laughs> you would be a a great asset to any respiratory staff <laughs> thanks yeah um are you able to talk about your research at all yeah um so i got approved well still waiting on the grant but we're gonna be putting up our proposal for um research at work myself and my partner holland she's also an rt that i went to school with um she graduated before me she was in diploma um we're essentially trying to test out if a different mode and different type and strategy of protective lung ventilation fares better than the protective ventilation strategy we use today. And we're trying to see if it reduces, if it's specifically not mortality, not anything else, but if it reduces the time spent on a ventilator. Um, So I guess before I talk about my mode in my research that I'm trying to pit against the original. The original um, style of protective lung ventilation has been like the forefront for like 20 years and it's called ARDSnet low tidal volume ventilation. So ARDS is that acute respiratory distress syndrome. So it's anybody that has this type of um, diagnosis will need a special way of ventilation. So normal conventional ventilation, let's say you're a 19-year-old overdose but you there's nothing wrong with your lungs it's simply you knocked yourself out and we're going to intubate you and put you on a ventilator give you narcan wait for you to wake up once you wake up we'll decrease our station we'll take the tube out and you go home Um, those people usually let's say they have no remarkable past medical history let's say this 19 year old doesn't smoke it doesn't have any lung deficits whatsoever has a completely normal lung so what we do is like standard setting we'll Standard settings and emerge. So like I would say, so for ventilation, we can control how big the breath is, tidal volume. And usually that standard would be 500 mils. 
then we can control the rate. So the rate at which you're breathing. Um, and usually that's anywhere, our settings are anywhere around 15 to 18 breaths per minute. Um, we set this thing called positive end expiratory pressure, which is called PEEP, which is um, an over-distending amount of pressure that we maintain to keep your lungs inflated. And that's for oxygenation purposes. And that's usually anywhere from five to eight for someone that's on more remarkable. If you've got a big belly, your, your belly probably crushes your lungs up a bit. So we'll usually do eight or 10, 12 maybe. Um, and then FiO2, which is your oxygenation. And those are your most basic of basic settings that um, we teach residents. But there's like a ton of other settings that RTs will know. But for these main ones, um, for that, for that 19-year-old OD, it'll just be regular amount of breaths. The rate is like nothing too, nothing too crazy. The oxygen requirements, very minimal. Didn't have any issues with the lungs. We're just waiting for him to wake up. So someone else that comes in with ARDS, let's say they drowned in water, in some muddy water, their lungs are full of stuff. And now their CT scan, their x-ray, the diagnosis of ARDS has been made. You can't shove in 500 mils like you did with that 19-year-old healthy lungs to this person that is partially full of muddy water. You would be essentially hurting their lungs more by trying to achieve the ventilation goals that you did with that 19-year-old. That 19-year-old, we would be aiming for a blood gas, an arterial blood gas normal range of 7.35 to 7.45, CO2 35 to 45. O2 80 to 100, bicarb 22 to 26, and um, O2 greater than 92. We are trying to make that 19-year-old have those perfect blood gas. And we can do that in a very normal fashion. But for an ARDS patient, you immediately cannot do that. You can't make those lungs look perfect and pretty and have that perfect gas that you want them to because their lungs simply can't hold it. You can't, if their lung is half full of let's just for illustration's sake, is half full of water and you're trying to push in 500 mils, you're trying to give them PEEP as well, you're, you're going to increase the pressure that is contained in their lungs to such a dangerous point, which we call plateau pressure. If plateau pressure is greater than 30, it has been proven to show that it will cause volume trauma and barotrauma, so trauma to the lungs. Mm -hmm. um, plateau pressure is the pressure that is... Um, in your lungs when there is no flow at all. So if we were to essentially, you are breathing in right now and then I cut off your breath and I measure it, that's your plateau pressure in that breath instant. So when I give someone 500 mils of volume or, and it's all done by ideal body weight too, the size, um, usually normal people, we ventilate them six mils per kilo to eight mils per kilo. Usually it's eight mils per kilo, but for ARDS, we are aiming for four to six mils per kilo. Um, ARDS settings will ventilate smaller, will make the rate faster, and will make the PEEP way higher to distend your lungs and pop them open because they're probably very collapsed from whatever you went through and your oxygen will be whatever you need it to be to be um adequate so when you ventilate someone with smaller volumes so volume and respiratory rate control your ventilation so that's your co2 the amount that you blow off your co2 peep and fio2 
will control your oxygenation. So your, your, your O2 number, not your CO2. So if someone comes in and we ventilate them smaller, so now we're blowing off CO2 um, in, in a small way every time rather than a big way. So you're, not, you're now not blowing your CO2 down very much, only by a little. So because you blow down your CO2 only by a little, let's say they come in and they have really high CO2, let's say like 70s or something, and now their pH correlates the respiratory acidosis, their pH is like 7.1, very terrible. Less than 7.2, there's going to be some, less than 7.3, there's less effects to the brain because you're not getting anything. Mm -hmm. If you have high CO2 in your blood, you'll have um, cerebral vasodilation. So your, um, your, the blood vessels in your, your brain will vasodilate. So all the blood will rush to your brain, but that will increase your pressures in the brain and that can cause uh, issues with your intracranial pressure and that kind of stuff. So you want to control the CO2. You never want it to be super high, but if they are simply like literally cannot, their lungs are just fucked. You have to do ARDS net ventilation or else you will destroy their lungs. You will hurt them even more and they will become sicker from being on a ventilator. Being on a ventilator is bad. Like being on a ventilator um, is unnatural. So the longer you spend on a ventilator, the higher the incidence of ventilator-associated pneumonia or diaphragmatic fatigue because we're breathing for you. Your body's not doing the things that it's supposed to do. Like we're doing it for you. Mm -hmm. So um, anyways, for volume, we'll do volumes four to six mils per kilo. So every breath is smaller. So your CO2 won't go down as much. So now we are aiming for lower pH goals rather than 7.35 to 7.45. Now we're accepting greater than 7.2. We're all right. We're not going to try and make this person 7.35. If they're 7.25, we're happy because that's what, that's all we can get for now. The respiratory rate will go anywhere up to like 24, whereas that, that 19 year old is like 15 ish, 24 to 26 will be the highest we'll go. And volume and respiratory rate multiplied together will create minute ventilation and minute ventilation if it's higher it will blow down your co2 and if it's lower it'll it won't as much so we are doing the high rate simply to have an adequate minute ventilation because your volumes are so small you're not blowing off your co2 very much with your volume so you have to now make up that difference in your rate so you can still achieve the goals that you want your PEEP is going to be really high. We have three different ways to find the optimal PEEP for that person. And once we find it, it will keep their lungs nice and open. And then oxygen is like whatever it needs to be. And if, if we're maxed out on everything, we start bringing in the adjunctive therapies. And if we're maxed out on those adjunctive therapies, like nitric oxide, flipping people on their stomach, the next thing we'll go to is... Um, VV ECMO, which is an artificial lung bypass machine where the, the lungs are outside of the body that we're using a machine and a perfusionist is controlling that machine. And we essentially full on let the lungs rest. And the ventilator isn't a fake lung. The ventilator is helping your lungs and your body rest. ECMO is like, they're literally being your lungs for you. So that's so like what's the, the what's the yeah. physical difference between those between a ventilator and uh, an external lung? 
How does how does the external no, lung bypass your 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 pulmonary system? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. ECMO is stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. So there's VA, which is um, lungs and heart, and then VV is lungs. Mm-hmm. VGH does VV. St. Paul's does VA, and I believe RCH does VA and some VV. But they'll usually send all the VVs to us. Um, so the difference is on a ventilator, you've got a tube down and your lungs are, we're using the lungs that you've got. We're doing ARDS because your lungs aren't great, or we're doing normal because your lungs are normal, like that 19 year old kid. Um, ECMO, they cannulate your arteries. Um, they cannulate as in they put large, large tubes and they take the blood that would have gone to your lungs. Okay. Take it away. I don't know if I can put more oxygen in it. It runs through these pumps and all this other stuff and then they put it back. So your lungs don't have to oxygenate that blood. Right. It's like, okay, they're just at, like the body is just about to bring it to you. Like, you know, your blood, your heart is pumping. It's gone from your right atrium to your right ventricle. It's now going to your pulmonary trunk. It's going to go into your lungs now. Then your lungs oxygenate, bring it back to the left ventricle, um, up to the aorta, and then to the rest of your body. It will steal it right from when it enters the lung. So mm-hmm. we rest your lung and we steal that blood. We put it in that ECMO machine. It like travels through this ECMO machine. They do a bunch of stuff. They like put in a bunch of oxygen, maybe they, like do other stuff. I don't know. Um, I'm not an expert on it. And then they'll return it back to your left atrium, mm-hmm. to your left ventricle. And then your the rest of your body gets those benefits. But your lungs were chilling the whole time. They didn't do a single thing. Okay, so when you're sense. on ECMO, you're on a ventilator also, but the ventilator is doing barely any work. The ventilator mm-hmm. is there to keep that lung open at the most minimal of the minimal possibility keep it open just so the so it's like sitting in your body correctly it's just like Mm. it's not completely collapsed we are there to keep it just enough open that your lungs are okay and they can just chill and then the ecmo is doing all the other stuff Mm -hmm. so yeah and so from what i understand your research it's something that they've practiced in europe and is is now something that you're looking at if that's right yeah, so my research is not related to ECMO, but it's now trying to see, you know, is that four to six mils per kilo, high rate, high PEEP, whatever oxygen you want, and then all these other settings and all this, um, these goals, is this style, that small volume, low tidal ventilation, is that style necessarily the best? I don't think so. I think this other ventilation might show more benefit or at least I think would decrease hospital length of stay or hospital um, ventilator length of stay Mm -hmm. Um, just because the way it distributes the breath, I think will improve patient outcomes. So it's called APRV. Um, It's airway pressure release ventilation. And it's this, uh, reverse type of ventilation where um, I'm going to say in like a really, because I'm still reading a ton of studies right now too. Mm -hmm. Um, But what we're doing is we have two different big pressure 
these PEEP levels. So that positive end expiratory pressure that I talked about, PEEP and FiO2 maintain oxygenation. Those are your oxygenation parameters. And then um, volume and rate are your ventilation, so your CO2 parameter controlling things. So PEEP, you can set two levels. So you can have a really high PEEP and then another high PEEP that's a little lower than the other one. And um, the patient can breathe at both of these levels. So they can breathe spontaneously if they wanted to at either level. But what we want to do is deliver a breath in which they are breathing like this. And then when they breathe out, usually we let people breathe out and then they breathe in and then they breathe out and then they breathe in. That's, that's what your rate does. You're setting your, your inspiratory time. You're setting your expiratory time. Mm-hmm. But for APRV, what we want to, what we, the theory is that they stay in inspiration for a longer amount of time and spend less amount of time on expiration. So their breaths would look like this. And the idea is when they exhale, they're not exhaling. You know, when you breathe in, it's like this, and then you breathe out. What the, what the point of um, protective lung ventilation is, we don't want someone to be breathing like, like, and right. when they breathe out, it's like collapse. Fully. collapse. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So like low tidal volume ventilation, you notice that I said that the rate is high. So the rate, you're breathing at 24, 26 breaths per minute. That's... Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're essentially going like this the whole time, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're snapping those lungs shut. But the reason why it doesn't happen in that protective hasn't killed people is because the peep is so high, right? That's also high in low tidal ventilation. So it's really good. So you're, like you're keeping enough air in the lungs yeah. that it doesn't collapse. Okay. Exactly. So the first protective lung ventilation, it's not destroying your lungs. It's not making you do that. It's just mm-hmm. like kind of doing this like quake quiver kind of thing. But APRV, what we want to do is big breath in, you get like in one second breathing out. <laughs> Like that. So the idea is that you will stay recruited for a longer period of time. So it will increase your oxygenation because both times you're on high peak levels. So you'll be breathing up to a certain level. And when you breathe down, you breathe down to a a high peak level as well. And then when you breathe back, when you go back up, you're on another higher level. So each time you're always recruited and there's not a single instance theory-wise, that you would truly collapse. And that is supposed to, and the ability for a patient as well to spontaneously breathe, like breathe on their own, if they were, let's say we're waking them up, they're coming out of their own, we're trying to see their neurological status, so we decrease the sedation to see like, are they able to obey, that kind of stuff. All these things happen, but when you are, when the mode of ventilation allows you to be synchronous when you're spontaneously breathing, you don't need as much sedation and you don't need as much neuromuscular blockade paralysis. And that is great for you as a patient because the less sedation that you get, the better outcomes, the less paralytic agents you get, the best it is for you. Um, But for the low tidal volume ARDS ventilation from before, you need to be like, RAS minus five. You need to be out like a light. Like you cannot react to pain. You cannot react to anything. We need to like snow you is what we say in order for that ventilation to work because it's an unnatural way to breathe. Tiny and fast is unnatural. So if you were awake and we were trying to make you do that, 
you would be so asynchronous with the vent, you'd peak pressure, you would fight against your ventilator, and it would cause all these other body-wide system issues. Your blood pressure would start going up, you would get tachycardic, you'd be high heart rate, you would start to get extremely agitated, and things would start going like crazy. So we need to snow you in order for you to breathe like that. But for APRV, we, we don't have to snow you as much. So that's also another secondary benefit. Mm -hmm. But um, when COVID was happening, they were doing a lot of APRV in Italy, actually. And they did it a lot, um, decent amount in the States, but it was more so Italy. And one of our intensivists um, talks a lot with like the Italy people, <laughs> I don't know, the, the Italians. Yeah. <laughs> and they did it and they had a lot of benefit with it. So we're just trying to bring that over to BC and we're just trying to bring that over to VGH and we'll see how that works. That is very cool. That, that does sound a lot like Tumo breathing. Um, mm. even, the, even the psychological impact you were talking about where increased blood pressure, increased heart rate, agitation, all of these things, I, I think all of those sound very similar. It actually so, does, now that I'm like uh -huh. thinking about it again. Mm -hmm. Wow. I do wonder if that will have an impact on the, on the immune system in, in increasing the, the, the immune system response because that's a part of tumor breathing. Mm -hmm. That's so weird. That's very interesting. That's cool. A little full circle there. Right? That's kind of weird. Weird. Maybe that... I know that when we ventilate them like that, they don't get hot. So that's the one part that's tripping me out, like the the wet blanket thing. I, I think there are I think there are alternative. Other. I think there are other parts to that. Like I know that you're right. you're supposed to visualize a fire in your stomach. Oh, okay. Like that's another yeah. So that's another part of it is kind of putting a conscious agent into effect that you're you're attempting to warm things up. You're attempting to increase your internal body temperature. So so maybe there are are components that are associated with. The, the other parts of the breathing that's not just physiological, but also psychological. Mm -hmm. So, but that's very... That would probably be the main one too, but that's very interesting, the high rate. Like even as I'm saying it, I'm like, hmm. <laughs> did we just copy their stuff for like modern day medicine? <laughs> They've been doing it for thousands of years now. So it would be a, an interesting connection to say the least for you guys to start incorporating that into your practice. Yeah. I, I just think I, I love ventilation. I don't know if it came across when I was explaining it. I think I blabbed for fucking five minutes straight, but I can tell that you love it. You're very, you're very good at explaining it. I think that I, thank you. I, I kept along for as much as I could, which you definitely made it easier than I think it would have been had I just stepped into one of your classes maybe. But no, I thought you did a I'm very good I'm sorry for job. talking your ear off. No, but like, it's, I, it's like really I said, cool. that's the goal of this. Yeah. And I love like when you're an RT and you're there and you're like, you're trying to, yeah, your patients, your patient and stuff. And I'm like, oh, I care about them. Like, I do care about them. But I'm like at this ventilator, like fucking breathe. Like, I'm like, do this and like do that. And then I'm like, whenever I'm setting these settings, there's also things that we look out for that I, I won't talk your ear off for that. But there's all these other things like, oh, I want to do this, but I need to be careful it doesn't do this. I want to do this, but it might impact this. And if, if that is too high, if they air trap because I set too high of a rate, then I'm either going to come down on that and then I'll have to sacrifice. And you do a lot of like thinking of like giving yourself room 
where you can ventilate, giving yourself. And also as a new grad, one of the things that I didn't understand was when I was ventilating a patient and they were so sick and I did all the ARDS stuff and I couldn't get pH that I wanted, that the doctors wanted, and we couldn't get it. And I'm like, why can I get it? I'm looking through all my settings. I'm maxed out. And recognizing that you're maxed out on your ventilator, that you literally cannot increase the rate by one. You literally cannot increase your volume by 10 mils. You cannot increase your PEEP any more higher because your plateau pressures and your, your air trapping, your all this stuff. Recognizing that is like also something that you need to realize. And that's part of the fun of trying to ventilate someone that's very difficult because you use like every aspect of your brain. Like you're looking at their clinical picture, but you're also looking at all your little numbers and all your little settings. And then you're also looking at them. Like, do they look fucked up? <laughs> like when mm. you do that, like, yeah. do they, are they completely snowed? Like, do they need to be more snowed if you want to do this? And it's so um, collaborative with the team and it's so, um, collaborative with your nurses, even like repositioning your patients because they nurses will reposition their patients so they don't get pressure ulcers from lying on one side for too long. When you turn them, then they start reacting on your ventilator and you're like, okay, we need more sedation because he's not liking this turn. Or like if you put them left side down and the left lung is worse than the right lung and then your, your oxygenation tanks because they're now all the perfusion it's all gravity dependent on your blood, right? So when you're left side down, it's all going towards like the the left side that's not very good. So you're not exchanging those lung, the lung exchange units aren't really like doing much with the increased amount of perfusion to that side. So now you're seeing changes in your oxygen and now your ventilator needs to be readjusted or you need to flip them back. And there's just so many different parts and that's what your day kind of becomes. Your day becomes a collection of these little moments. And then next thing you know, it's 7 p.m. and you got to go home. <laughs> so, yeah. It sounds like a very cool process. It sounds like a, um, you're constantly analyzing the, the corollaries between the numbers and the patient and trying to understand the patient and the biofeedback they give you as well as the numbers. And you're, you're trying to hit the, some optimal level that you would consider to be the best state for the patient. So I, I think that's a very, like you it's said, very you, like, you like the beep, calculated. Beep, beep. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like and, a very, yeah, calculated. That's a good, very good word for it. And that's just one part when they're at that sick road and you're in ICU, then you get to the wards and your people deteriorate on the wards all the time and end up in ICU. So they were like, maybe, not everybody goes to ICU. Like every, some people can like get a surgery and go in the wards and then they're like kind of waiting around to be stable and then they go home or some people are waiting around and then all of a sudden they deteriorate and then you have to troubleshoot. It's why it's funny being an RT because you start off seeing people the sickest state they are. So then when you move to the wards, everybody's healthy and you're like, well, everyone's like, okay. And you're like, this is weird. Yeah. <laughs> And you can all you have to like learn to recognize when someone is starting to go into that deep end, but you're trying to you're working from a point of reversal because you were starting in the deep end and you're like, how does it look to be like not like that? Mm -hmm. It's very funny. Yeah, mm -hmm. 
I wanted to. Um, I'm not sure how much longer you have or how long we've been I going for. for that of time. Okay, perfect. Yeah. I I wanted to talk about COPD and okay, and also comorbid comorbidities to COVID because I understand that maybe the death rate is quite low, but there are a variety of comorbidities that we're, I think, going to be experiencing and studying for the decades to come, and and that might be something that people haven't considered very much. So mm -hmm. what are the comorbidities that you see going into the future with regard to COVID? And then also, I would assume that COPD, particularly from the cause of vaping, is now mm. causing a more impactful COVID for the youth than it maybe would have had that not been introduced. Mm -hmm. I guess, simply put, If you've got a lot more shitty things going on, when something shitty happens to you, it's just going to be worse. Mm -hmm. So if you can not have liver cirrhosis from drinking heavily for 15 years, if you can not vape yourself to a point of COPD, or if you just weren't born with asthma and you weren't born with an autoimmune disease, if you didn't have diabetes, from birth or if you didn't eat yourself to have the other type of diabetes or if you don't have hypertension or gout and i would say the main ones for covid to be worse ooh if you have an aki acute kidney injury or if you have chronic kidney disease that's a lot of old people old people at a certain point you're like stuff starts to crap out which is fair um, so a lot of patients with chronic kidney disease, not peeing and not being able to pee things out is actually a really big issue because we, um, it relates to the kidneys relate to the lungs a ton. Um, when I mentioned that arterial blood gas bicarbonate, that is actually a kidney thing. Okay. Um, bicarb. Um, I don't know how to like. I can, frame, you, like, I, I can frame a question if that helps. Yeah, like, how do you just, I just don't know how to describe, like, five years of studying in, like, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, like, if you can't pee, we give drugs to people that have a lot of fluid in their lungs. Even COVID, they have a certain amount of fluid in their lungs. We give them this thing called Lasix. Mm -hmm. It's a diuretic, and you essentially pee out the extra fluid. But you can kind of see where the problem will run into when you have chronic kidney disease and you have this shit in your lungs or trying to give you something to pee it out, but you literally can't make that pee, even if we give you a crazy amount of Lasix, like 120, 80 to 120 mg. Sometimes they'll do it like 40 Lasix twice daily for however many days. But if we're slamming you with this Lasix and you are trying to pee it out, but you can't and you're accumulating it, it's just going to stay where it was staying before. Mm -hmm. So I would say that one's a really rough one. If you're going to pick which comorbidity <laughs> sucks. Oh, any kidney issue. Well, um, kidney, any lung disease that you kind of have already. Mm -hmm. COPD, asthma, interstitial lung disease, and, and pulmonary is, fibrosis. Can you explain COPD and the, the cause for it and why it's becoming more and more of a uh, contentious issue 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know it's a dragon. I know it's a dragon. It's a dragon, but I also. I'm like I oh, want to make right. sure I have. The, I want to. I'm. I've got my book right here. I just found it under my. Oh, there we go. Okay, so chronic COPD is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Mm -hmm. So it's a state of hyperinflation where your lungs, um, you have emphysema. And emphysema is, um, you essentially this disease is you have a breakdown of your alveolar wall, those little balloons we had talked about earlier that your lung is full of a million of these yeah, lung Yeah, the ends of the root systems essentially. Exactly. The, the very end when you do your like bio class, like at mm -hmm. the very end is the little balloon. Um, those walls are destructed to the point where they become floppy, like we were talking about before. Would I say the COPD floppy is the same as the COVID floppy? Not at all. Um, but How do they differentiate? The, uh, they differentiate as in this floppiness defines the disease process, whereas COVID is not defined by that. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, I was like proud of myself for saying it like that. Wow. <laughs> that was bad. You're very well spoken, Izzy. I'm very proud of you. No, I'm not. Um. <laughs> I think you are. We can agree to disagree, though. Anyway, COPD. So it's just um, emphysema, the breakdown of the alveolar walls will be, mm -hmm. and it's like a permanent destruction. So people don't understand. Once your lung, t once that, once the lung is destroyed or certain parts are lost you can't get it back like you can't stopping smoking is cool because you're gonna stop it from getting worse but you're never gonna recruit and regain that lung capacity that you lost from your 20-year pack history if that mm -hmm. makes sense yeah. so the breakdown of these alveolar walls will lead to a permanent dilatation of these air spaces so now you're gonna have all these little balloons are gonna be bigger so uh, how that how that will look for someone physically well they'll usually be hyperinflated and have more of like a barrel chest presentation they will sound um like they're i don't know like short of breath like often um they there could be a component where there could be like a formation of blebs as well and like blebs are where are they again it's like Mm, pockets of like lung um pockets of air so your lung is like this and you have this thing called visceral pleura that is this film that's a surrounds and encases your lung and then your lungs are in your chest cavity in your chest wall but there's like a little bit of space between the said chest wall and your lungs themselves and the chest wall itself is lined with something else um is it parietal plural did i mix them up anyways and that space between the chest wall and the the lung there's this um negative pressure that kind of keeps them open like this and you can have blebs that form between that um, mm. when you have COPD as well. And then overall, that disease process also results in a destruction of your pulmonary capillaries. So those blood vessels that surround those little balloons. So now your balloon is bigger and more destroyed. And then the capillaries themselves are like kind of crappier. So now your gas exchange 
is not as good permanently for your like lifetime. So you're hyperinflated. Every breath you take is not as big as it used to be. You can't, you don't feel full every time you get short of breath a lot. You probably can't like run a marathon. I mean, I'm sure people do, but like on average, you're just more breathless. And then your oxygen in general is lower. So when patients come in with COPD, oh, he's a COPD for like 15 years, our saturation goals immediately go to 88 to 92. Um, normal people, we will always target 92 and above, but if you have COPD, we'll go straight to 88 to 92. So we will accept a lower form of oxygen simply because we know what your disease process does. And that's your, your normal resting oxygen in your blood is lower than the average individual that doesn't have COPD. Right. And so something, something like smoking or vaping where it's a superheated liquid that turns into a vapor that's that's so hot that it can burst the the alveoli at the the ends of the lungs i don't know how the vape actually creates that destruction i don't know if it bursts the alveoli i don't i don't think it does um but it's not air and it's smoke so Mm -hmm. that in time is going to contact that epithelium of your lung exchange units and um and affect it on like a molecular level, I guess. Mm-hmm. And also different as you go down your tracheobronchial tree. Um, so your lungs, you know, the, the lungs are the tree of life. Yeah. Like as you go down to the end, um, there's actually little hairs um, that are, what are they called again? Sorry. Celia. Celia, thank you. <laughs> you have cilia up to a certain point, and those like help the mucociliary escalator help you like continuously sweep your mucus and clean out your lungs. It's like your like lung lung cleaner. Like these hairs will allow you to breathe in if you're like you know it's a smoky day. You're tree planting. You're breathing in smoke. That cilia is supposed to trap some of those particles of dust and Mm. not let it get all the way down to like the main the main important lung guys it'll kind of like filter it out filter it out Mm -hmm. but when you're vaping you burn those hairs and once you burn those hairs you can't grow them back so you vape enough you vape high and like the coil is high enough or whatever Mm -hmm. um to the point where you burn that cilia and then it can just, whatever you breathe in with your vape, just go straight down, <laughs> like yeah. all the way down there. <laughs> so that's, that's probably one of them. So yeah, I would say COPD is kind of a rough one. I wouldn't want that one. And it was a, uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've met a few people with COPD and mm-hmm. the, the lacks of the lack of oxygen makes them very unable to move. Dizzy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you're you're not really able to. I know people that can mow their lawn for five minutes at a time because they have COPD. And that one is more is not related to the oxygen. That is related to the loss of radial traction of the distal airways in your lungs. So because you lost that traction, traction as in the 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 tension to keep the the airways open. Mm-hmm. When you exhale, your distal airways actually get a little smaller, but they never collapse because they are strong enough to stay open or whatever, not fully go like this. Your lungs have 
capabilities so that that doesn't happen. Um, but when you have COPD, that loss of radial traction will give you a significant difference. So they can't mow their lung for longer than five minutes because as they're breathing in and working and pushing the lawnmower, they're exhaling and they're exhaling and they're collapsing every time. And when they're collapsing, then they start to get really breathless because every time you're breathing in, you have to pop it back open. And every time you breathe out, you're snapping them back close. So that is probably why they can't like live life like great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know <laughs> which one would I rather have COPD or asthma? I think I'd rather have like low key asthma, but if I had severe asthma, I'd rather be a COPD. But you can also have asthma and COPD, which is kind of a monster. It kind of sucks for people that have that. Um, it's a real, real one-two punch. Yeah, it's really bad. What are you going to say? What's it called? Um, it's like asthma COPD overlap syndrome. So it's like, or disorder. So it's like mm -hmm. AEO, CO, like whatever. Um, <laughs> And the, you said that was it emphysema is a, a precursor slash part of COPD. There was a there was a, a there's a book that I read a few weeks ago. Or I guess it's longer than that now. But anyway, um, James Nestor's Breathe, and he talks a lot about. You're reading that. My sister's reading that. I want to really? read it next. I would I would send it to you, but I I yes. constantly go back and look at it. It's very good though. I think you would really like it. And he talks about emphysema. And so there was this there was this guy in the the latter half of the. 20th century and he found he found a way to not cure copd by attacking the emphysema but by recruiting the diaphragm mm. and doing a more diaphragm regulated breathing all right i remember we talked about that. yeah he found that he found that that was a way for people to increase their quality of life and there are these videos that you can i think i sent you one of the videos where it's they take a video of this guy before he starts this treatment and then after and the guy went from being very shoulders hunched forward and very internal and then he's walking around and he can actually walk through the hospital now and and supposedly the the actual intervention the way that james describes it is that it's it looked too gimmicky to become a part of academia because mm. he has these people on the table and he's like striking their their rib cage and their their chest cavity in different areas so that he can I don't know, maybe bring conscious attention to these areas for people to to begin their breath work. And mm -hmm. and, and yeah, so it, it's very interesting that that there's no that was something that potentially could have become a part of the protocol, but because it looked so outlandish, it's now been forgotten. Breath work, I would say, is very much a part of a COPD's COPDers normal life like you'll get like these 70 year old guys that are like oh yeah i've been smoking like for 30 years and i have copd yeah i've got my puffers i know exactly how to take it they're super on top of their health like they do diaphragmatic breathing on their own they have we actually have these things called incentive spirometers it's just like this little um three ball system with a mouthpiece and we get patients um that are like post-cardiac surgery or so they've been lying on the table for a really long times so mm -hmm. with their heart open and stuff getting operated on so their lungs kind of de-recruit or copders will have this at home um, they are also de-recruited at a certain extent as well 
Oh shit, what time is it? <gasps> oh wait, okay, never mind. <laughs> I thought it was Tuesday and I thought I had my massage like right now and I was like <laughs> it's Monday. It is Monday, yeah. Um but the COVID screen came for like the massage clinic, like please fill out your COVID questionnaire. And I was like, is it right now? Um they will they'll um what the incentive spirometer is they'll put their mouth on the mouthpiece and they'll they're encouraged to breathe in deep and as long as possible and the the deeper they breathe in they're trying to raise those three balls so like if you breathe in deep the first ball will raise and if you breathe in even deeper the second ball will raise and then if you breathe in really deep for really long the third one will raise so it's incentive as in the patient can look and be like oh i'm like almost at three right. biofeedback marker very cool yeah Pretty much. Mm-hmm. So they'll do that. And then also to kind of tie it into mechanical ventilation, um, that diaphragmatic work, maybe not diaphragmatic work, but more that breath work of like a larger breath, we tend to set higher peeps on patients with COPD or are in COPD exacerbation. Mm-hmm. And um, usually we'll put BiPAP, that non-invasive positive pressure, like if we don't intubate them and they're not quite there yet, we'll use BiPAP, which gives... Um, which you can set a PEEP level and then you can set a pressure level, which that person can breathe on top of that PEEP. We will set that PEEP level bigger too. And we will do that to kind of help make them have a bigger breath. Mm -hmm. But as for the diaphragmatic part, um, there is diaphragmatic pacing right now that's being researched and seeing the benefit of incorporating a diaphragmatic pacer when you're being mechanically ventilated. So something that gives you a little zhuzh, like every time you get a mechanical breath to kind of keep your diaphragm active in that entire stay that you're on the ventilator, because when you're on the vent, you're not moving anything. Like when I give you a breath, I'm pushing your, your diaphragm down. You're not using your phrenic nerve and your thoughts and your, not your thoughts because you're doing it like involuntarily, but your phrenic nerve is not, sparking it whatsoever and making your diaphragm pull down i'm pushing air in that pushes your diaphragm to to do this and when you exhale your diaphragm is passive so that's kind of interesting too that's a thing that sfu and uh, i believe rch they are collaborating and they're um researching that mm-hmm. because yeah yeah, so that, that could potentially be one of the, the long-term effects of going on a ventilator is that your your body stops recruiting the, what could you say, maybe the, it stops recruiting the, not psychological, because like you said, it's I guess it would kind of be psychological, but it's the unconscious processes involved in maintaining our bodies. And if you take that away, like if you start to mm-hmm. beat someone's heart for themselves, then over time it will stop to work on its own. and and just become complacent with the the pumping, the manual pumping. And then if you stop that all in one go without reintroducing the person to the process, then their heart will just kind of stop. I don't know about in the heart. Sense, yeah. I'm not, yes. no, that's like, that's like yeah. totally, I'm, I'm just trying to kind of relate sure. them back and forth. I, I actually haven't read any literature on manual heart pumping. As <laughs> but, uh, but totally for the diaphragm, for sure. And mm-hmm. you'll sometimes get people that got shot in the stomach and it nicked their phrenic nerve a little bit and their um, diaphragmatic movement capability has gone down a bit. Um, or if you have spine 
injuries. Um, a certain level of C-spine injury will take your diaphragm out of the picture. You can't even breathe on your own anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's stuff like that, um, that the diaphragm is actually really, really important. Right. Or sometimes like if you're in like open abdomen surgery or like your open chest surgery, let's say, and they like accidentally nick the diaphragm, like things like that will kind of take you out. And there should be, I think they're doing studies on how to either continuously activate it if you have a disease process that makes you more breathless or on the other realm, um, implementing like artificial devices to increase your diaphragmatic function as well. And it's, it's all in a spectrum, but yeah, see back to COPD is just, it's, uh, very, it does affect your activity activities of daily life. I would say, Mm -hmm. um, any lung thing you're going to notice it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you wanna do you wanna do you wanna cut there? I don't wanna take too much of your of your night away. No, I'm I'm good. I'm just sitting around. Okay. We can just chat. Or if you gotta go, I'm cool with that too. No, I I uh I think I'm good. Like I can I can turn this off and then you and I can just chat for a little bit. That would yeah. be nice. All right, well, thanks for coming on. Uh I'll see the people that listen. I probably my parents, maybe. Uh, Talk to you guys later. Bye-bye. Thanks, Izzy. Bye.